0: Why would they allow it? It's like they don't have a choice. That's that's the, the simpler answer. How how are they gonna stop it? They can't stop it. It's sort of like even in China, like they've you know, you can't Twitter and Facebook and Google are banned in China, but they're they're all being used by citizens because people know how to route around it. It's the internet. You can you can make anything happen on the internet. Bitcoin is the internet of money, and it's and this is going to happen whether you know, these parties that are in control now are super powerful and they will do everything they can to number one, regulate it. And if they can't figure out how to regulate it, they'll do what they can to shut it down, but it's not going anywhere. It's going to keep, it's going to keep coming back.
1: Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavski and welcome to episode 123 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Now, over the last year and a half, I've become very interested in crypto, the technology that makes it work and the impacts that it has on our economy, businesses, and life as digital citizens. However, I am far from an expert on the subject. As I've said before, I know just enough to be dangerous. So, I decided to talk with an actual expert on the subject, and that is my guest today, who you may know on the internet as Gerbs. Gerbs has been very active in the crypto space for many years and is the man behind the fantastic crypto site BitLift, which aims to be an educational resource for people interested in cryptocurrencies. His article, The Bitcoin Rabbit Hole, was the first explanation I read about crypto when I became interested in the subject and is perhaps one of the best places to learn about it in layman's terms. During this interview, Gerbs and I went down the rabbit hole yet again and discussed the basics of money and why Bitcoin is so superior when compared to other currencies of the world. What exactly is a blockchain and why the technology is such a groundbreaking advancement that many people compare to the invention of the internet and everything else that you need to know as a beginner about the differences between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the rest of the many cryptocurrencies that have popped up over the last few years. But before we jump into the interview, guys, I would love to hear what you think about this podcast. As you've probably heard before, I've made it very easy to leave a review. All you have to do is head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that podcasting apps look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. I'm so thankful for you guys for leaving reviews. Uh, we recently crossed 50 uh, plus uh, five star reviews. So thank you guys so much for leaving reviews and now I'm setting sites for a hundred reviews. It's going to be uh, such a huge achievement. And uh, when we do cross that marker, I might, you know, we might do some sort of virtual party or something like that to celebrate. So guys, thank you so much uh, in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. And uh, thank you for joining me over on YouTube as well if you've become a subscriber. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Gerbs. All right, Gerbs, welcome to the show, man. I am super stoked to have you here. Always love talking crypto. So like I was telling you before uh, we hit record... Uh, I have found myself in this position where people are asking me about crypto in my, like, general life, which is, I just, I a just not a good idea because I am, and I said this to you as well, I was like, I'm dangerous enough to, like, know enough that I could lose all my money on it. And so I'm super excited to have somebody on here uh, that is far more educated than I am on this. Uh, You have a fantastic website called Bitlift. Uh, which in my opinion is like, I've read a lot about crypto and your website is actually the one that really helped me like understand it better and kind of like communicate it to me in layman's terms. Um, So yeah, I'm just really excited to talk to you uh, about crypto here, but let's start off like very simply. Um, How did you get into all of this uh, in the first place? Like how did you first discover crypto? How did you get into this whole world?
0: Yeah. So I first discovered it, you know, I'm a, I'm a web developer um, and an entrepreneur and I've built many different e-commerce products and stuff. Um, And when I was looking to build a new site, you know, we're always beholden to these payment networks, the, the visas and MasterCards. And then, you know, these merchant accounts like PayPal and whatnot that we accept money online with. And I couldn't, I was getting like, you know, the, the getting approved on those networks is such a pain in the butt. You got to send them every piece of information in your entire life. And then you're beholden to them. And not only are you beholden to them, like every payment your customer makes is routed through them so they can scrape their fees off of it and then give you whatever's left. The whole system is just totally screwed. So I was really looking for how can I get paid online without going through these middlemen? And that was when I, it just so happened. It was like during the 2013 Bitcoin boom. I wasn't looking for the investment opportunity. I was looking for like a solution to this problem and it turned out to be epic timing. And that's kind of where it all started.
1: And so, I mean, in 2013, I remember, actually, no, I'm going to date myself here, but I was just out of high school. So I don't think I was thinking about Bitcoin at the time, but (laughs) I even remember in like 2017 when there was kind of like that second boom. Right. And everybody was talking about it, but even at that time, I was like, this is bullshit. And I'm, this is going to be something crazy. Right. And it wasn't until this more recent, like around COVID, and like when I looked at, into it a little bit more, that I really got it. So, what was it about? What, like, what was it about then that w- when you read it that early on, that you were like, oh, this is a, a real solution to this pain point that I'm having?
0: I think something like my angle on it is that I'm, I'm a developer. And like I, 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 before I started this, that previous company, I was in Silicon Valley doing like the tech startup thing. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with, you know, the various tech stacks. And the first thing I did was read the Bitcoin white paper. You know, it's funny, 99% of people with Bitcoin today have not read the Bitcoin white paper. It's only eight pages. And quite frankly, it's not, it, it does get technical and you can read those pages two or three times and you'd get it. It's not that hard to read. And it's an amazing, amazing starting point, like reading Satoshi's words on exactly what he was trying to create. And when I read it, it just resonated perfectly with me, not just from the technical side, but, you know, the first page is him talking about, you know, the the banking system collapse in 2008 and the bailouts Mm. of the banks and why, like if we had a hard money system, why none of that would happen and how let's build now we have the tech, let's build the thing that would have avoided that in the first place. And all of that was just like, man, it didn't take any more than reading that for me to be all in.
1: Mm. So let's, what I want to do with this podcast, with this episode is really like, I want people who are listening to this, who at this point, everybody knows what Bitcoin is and thinks they know what crypto is. But even I'm one of these people that are like, I think I know what crypto is, but I I'm kind of like, I really want to understand it better. So let's sort of like, I just want to make this into like a crash course around Bitcoin and and crypto and all that kind of stuff. And this is essentially like, you know, you're launching a podcast, which should be coming out when this episode is coming out. And that's really what that podcast is about. So I think we should give people a little taste of what that's going to be all about. So what do you think is like the basic thing that people need to understand about crypto? Because I know that on the BitLift website, we really start out with like, what is money? So yeah. what do you think, like, what is the difference between, you know, this is the term that gets thrown around as like fiat currency. What is the, the difference between the dollar and Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency? And why is it just so much better than the fiat currency, like the US dollar?
0: Yeah, that question, what is money, is like the foundation of everything that crypto is built on. Um, and it's, for me, it was... I actually didn't dive really deep into that question until a few years into my crypto journey, but that was like the, one of the most eye-opening questions. You know, We work our ass off for this money that we make. And then we, we, we put it in either, well, we hold it in fiat dollars, which we'll talk about. And then we also use like Wall Street as a savings account, right? We like buy index mm-hmm. funds or we buy stocks. And like, why can't we just hold our money and not have it be depreciated away or inflated away from us? Um, and this idea that money is, it's just a simple tool, right? It's like, it's like a pen, a pen has these properties. It's got it. You got to be able to hold it in your left hand or your right hand. It's got to, um, you know, be able to like turn it on or turn it off. Um, these are like properties of a pen or features, right? Money is the same thing, but we're grown up thinking money is a dollar bill. Like mm-hmm. That's what we associate with money. But really money is just a tool like any other tool. And the properties that it has um, are things like, It needs to be able to store value. For example, when you create value in the world, you can't spend it at the same time as you create it. So you need a way to store it. Another reason is, you know, maybe you need to store up a lot of value because maybe you're buying something expensive. So you need a good package to like store your value in that doesn't have, that isn't a leaky faucet and like, you know, leaks value at the back, like, like fiat dollars do. So it has money has these properties. And once you go through them all, you can see. Um, Like one of the most important properties is is the scarcity factor. And the reason scarcity is so important is because you need like a foundation to build on. So, you know, everyone used to say like money has to be backed by something and money, you know, in in historic times was backed by gold. And everyone thought that money had to be backed by a physical object because that's where its value came from. And what I learned and what really was eye opening for me is that it, it wasn't the physical item that really gave the dollar value. It was that this physical item was so scarce, right? Gold is very scarce. I've heard that all the gold on planet Earth can fit into two Olympic sized swimming pools, right? Some people may have heard that. And that it's true. And what happens is only a very small amount of new gold is mined every year, and they mm-hmm. can't mine it any faster. So, this idea that like gold is just like, it's this good foundational base that they can't, they can't print 10,000 million more pounds of gold. It's not possible. So that creates a good foundation to build a money on top of. So if you store a lot of gold and issue people paper for that gold and say, for every dollar bill that I give out, um, here's a piece of paper that you can redeem that gold back for. Now people can start you know trading those, those gold certificates and they can use that as money. And that's how, you know, even the US, that's how it started when we were on the gold standard. But what happened and what's happened all through history, um, the, all the way, like even before the fall of Rome, like there were more civilizations even before that that had this same problem where the, the governments and someone needs to manage this paper, this money system, and they get greedy. They discover, hey, I can shave a little bit of gold off the side of these coins and, and make more coins with it, or I can issue. Um, gold coins with you know with copper in the center of them, and no one will know. And they just get greedy, and that's that's inflating the money supply in a way, and it's inflating everybody that holds some of that money. Now has been um, diluted a little bit. Every dollar that gets printed, and nowadays fiat money is this. We've gone off the gold standard completely, and we use these like you know these mathematicians to manage the entire economy and decide how much money there should be or how much to take away, which by the way, they never take away any. And the system has lost its, its foundational scarcity.
1: Well, and like one of the things that I've kind of been thinking about this is like, you know, a lot of people are saying that like, you know, the issue is that we went off the gold standard and now like, you know, because of that, the dollar is becoming devalued and like really the value of the dollar is what we believe the value of the dollar is, right? It's like whatever like value or however much we believe in it. But the other thing to think about it as well is like, I mean, the only reason why the gold standard works is because we think gold is valuable, right? If we were to all one day just decide like, well, you know what, gold isn't gold anymore. It's actually like shells or whatever. Then that would be the most, you know, like it's still into our belief. And so like, that's one of the things that like, I was kind of like, I mean if we believe that bitcoin is super valuable then you know that can be the next thing or whatever that other crypto is it all comes down to like what we believe right so uh, i think in that way it's like it's way more feasible that like you know it could be something else at some point I, don't, I i thought that too this idea that like it has value because we believe it but it's
0: actually not the case like what i learned is that gold has value because of its scarcity that mm-hmm. idea that it's so scarce and that there's only a certain amount of new gold that's mined every year, and that for hundreds of years we've been tracking that metric and it hasn't fl- it hasn't fluctuated. That is the reason that gold has value, not because you know we all believe it does. It's 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 that fundamental scarcity, and you know as we'll talk about with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is programmatically scarce, and it's even more scarce than gold because there's like this fixed issuance schedule of bitcoins. And it'll never reach more than twenty-one million. Gold, on the other hand, will continue to be mined for all of time, slowly, which is is good, um, but it's not the best, and that's what makes Bitcoin, quote unquote, the best as far as hard currencies are concerned.
1: Not to mention that, like, we could find an asteroid one day with a shit ton of gold, and you know, like, we could potentially find more of it at, at some point. But how? So you talked about mining Bitcoin. Um, tell me what that means, because I, I know that it's essentially like, you know, mining it is a bit of a misnomer as to what it is, because it's essentially like tracking the transactions that are happening on the system, correct? So miners are people who are essentially making sure that everything that's happening on there on the blockchain stays secure and accurate. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, they're definitely a big part of it. Um, it's actually the nodes on the network that are, doing, that are tracking all the transactions and verifying everything. And then some of those nodes can be mining nodes where people can plug in all of this, um, you know, this power and this these energy sources to crunch these numbers. But so, you know, yeah, mining is like a metaphor for mining gold, right? It's um, and that's, but what's really happening is that every 10 minutes, there's a lottery in the Bitcoin system. And. You know, the way Bitcoins are released out into the world is through this mining process. So day one, when Satoshi launched Bitcoin for the first time, he was the only miner on the network. And every block, which a block happens every 10 minutes, it's like a batch of Bitcoin transactions. Every block, one miner wins the lottery and they are issued 50 new Bitcoins that were that are created. And, and that was Satoshi in day one by himself. He was trying to get other people to use it, but he was the only miner and slowly it grew. And this idea that there's like this lottery so your computer is trying to guess millions of times a second this this special number and if it can guess this number it's very easy to verify that it's the right number but it's super super hard to guess the number from scratch and that cons the, and and that's kind of like a root like basis for all of cryptography quite frankly and that's why we call it cryptocurrency and so this mining process anyone can come in and try and participate in this mining process. Um, And it's important because like I said, there were no Bitcoins and Satoshi needed a way to release Bitcoin to the world without being like just giving it to his buddies, right? Like how do you fairly issue a new money that didn't exist? And this mining process was the system he came up with to not only fairly release it over a long period of time, but it also helps secure the network because In order to reverse any transactions on the system, you would have to re-mine the blocks that have already been mined. And while you're trying to do that, new ones are stacking on top, making it virtually impossible to sort of reverse the blockchain.
1: So I think we're going to dive in a little bit deeper here on the cryptocurrency, but I really think that this is, or at least on the cryptography part of it, because I think in order to move ahead and to really understand why this is so valuable, we need to understand like kind of like how all of this works. And this is some of these things that like I've sort of glanced over or I've sort of like, like okay, I get this kind of, I'm going to move on to the next step in it. But why is it that guessing a random number, like in this scenario that you're explaining makes it secure? Like, I think this is the part where I, I really become confused as to like how this whole thing works. Like, why is it that these people that are guessing a random number keep it secure or the computer is guessing random numbers keep it secure? So the idea is that we we don't want a central party
0: or AKA one person or even a small group of people being the people that decide which transactions are allowed to be processed and which ones are not right. We want it to be um, a group effort or a decentralized decentralized, process. Exactly. So what Satoshi came up with in order to solve that is let's just have a giant lottery for every block that gets mined, and whoever wins, they're the one that um, uh, is gets rewarded, and they're the ones that decide what that block is going to look like, and it's going to be a different person every time because it's a hard lottery. Mm. And and this this you may have heard this concept of proof of work. Yeah. And what that what that means is like. You can't win that lottery unless you put in the work and putting in the work means guessing that number. And if you guess that number, it's freaking hard to guess that number. You're competing with the largest supercomputing platform on planet earth. So it's a, you, you proved that you put in the work to guess this number. If you're the one that gets it right. And this, that lottery is happening every 10 minutes, like clockwork. Um, And, and that's what makes all of this work.
1: So essentially, and and this might be simplifying it a little bit, but what you're saying is that, you know, let's say, for example, my computer and your computer are competing to see who guesses the right number and Mm -hmm. whichever one of us guesses the right number gets the chance to then essentially run the operation to make sure that everything stays secure. And then we're rewarded for, for doing that.
0: That's exactly right.
1: Gotcha. So So this is, it's interesting because I've never fully understood this, but so Uh that makes a lot of sense. And like, when you said like, we get to decide what that block looks like, what does that mean? And why, why is that still protected if technically, if I get the chance to secure that block to make sure that, you know, block is correct, couldn't I fumble with what's happening inside of that block? Like, couldn't I mess it up in some way?
0: You could but there are very specific rules that the Bitcoin network follows, right? So let's, so um, one of them, like here's an example of one that you don't, that a miner doesn't have to follow, which is typically a miner would include all the transactions that have the highest amount of fee associated with it, right? Because miners are trying to make money. It's the only reason they're actually even participating in this thing. But quite frankly, as a miner, you don't have to sort it by most amount of money. It's one of the rules, that it's, it's just not one of the rules that you have to do that. Um, But there are rules, um, you know, specific rules, like, I mean, each, each transaction has to be verified, for example. Um, These, there are these rule sets. And what happens is if you, if you win the lottery and you decide which transactions are going to be in that block, you then share the hash that are, you know, your lottery ticket and everyone can look at your block and they can Every, every node on the network and thousands of networks or nodes all over the world, they can all verify your block in real time immediately. Mm. And if any one of them thinks, hey, his, I don't like his block. It's not following this rule. It can throw it out. It doesn't have to even agree with you, even though you won the lottery. It can wait for the next block or it can keep mining itself. Um, but what's hap- this, is the, this is the process of consensus. This idea that all these nodes need to agree together on what these blocks look like. And that's what they're doing. That's, they're spending their hard, hard-earned energy um, ver- doing all these verifications, making sure that everyone on the network is
1: following the rules. Mm. So you mentioned that one of the things that keeps, you know, uh, one of the things that makes Bitcoin so valuable and such a good store of value is the fact that it's, you know, scarce. There's only 21 million Bitcoins out there. And X percentage of them have already been mined. They're already gone, right? Yep. What happens when we run out? How does this network continue to exist and continue to stay secure when all 21 million of these are mined, essentially?
0: Yeah. So we talked about how you know Satoshi was earning 50 bitcoins per block when when he first started, but what happens is every four years that amount that the miners um, are rewarded with when they win the lottery gets cut in half. It's called the halving. So it was 50, then 25, then 12 and a half, and now we're at six and a quarter bitcoins. Per um, per block are rewarded, and that's the way bitcoins, new bitcoins, are issued to the world, right? Um, and that is going to keep get cutting in half. It's going to go. What's what's next? Three and an eighth, and then I don't even know. It's going to until it's estimated like in the year 2140, all bitcoins will have finally been um, released. And what happens then is we fall back on miners. Will continue to mine because uh, there's fees on the transactions. So we talked about how a miner would usually sort a block by the most fees that it can earn. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is as Bitcoin grows and as the blocks become f- full with transactions, um, the amount of fees associated with every transaction will be as much or more worthwhile than those initial issuance Bitcoins that, that were released. So um, the miners won't be kind of getting the, their bonus anymore from the block reward, but they'll still be able to collect the fees from every block that they, that they mine. And who pays those fees? Every transaction that you, um, the users of the network, so uh, the people transacting, they're the ones that spend the fees. So um, right now, today, uh, fees are actually really low, which is kind of surprising. But um, when you send, if you send me some Bitcoin, you have to attach a small amount of fee to that transaction. um, And that fee is rewarded, is earned by the miner who is going to include your transaction in a block. Um, And sometimes what happens is the blocks become really full because there's only a certain amount of transactions that can fit in each block. So when that happens, people have to kind of increase the amount of fee on their transaction to kind of ensure their spot in the block. And it turns into like an auction, essentially. Mm. Um, You want to kind of bid more than everyone else to ensure that your transaction gets included and all those fees are collected by the miner.
1: So essentially, like if there's a lot of activity in the system, it's going to be more expensive for you to do something in the system because it's more clogged up, right? If there's like not a lot of activity, the fees drop.
0: That's correct. Yep.
1: So if we all run out of Bitcoin, like you said, or not, we all run out of all Mm -hmm. of it is mined by the year 2140. Yep. And the fees go up. Wouldn't that kind of make the value of Bitcoin lower because it's more expensive to deal with? Because I think one of the benefits of it is that it's like a low... Cost way to send money into, you know, like you were saying, is like, you know, not to have banks put fees on top of it.
0: Yep. This is something I've struggled with a lot as well. Um, When I first got into Bitcoin, it was essentially free because no one was using it. And we were throwing, we were flinging Bitcoins around all over the place and paying almost nothing in fees. And I was like, this is the future of online payments. Um, But what I've come to realize and learn is that. You know, Bitcoin is more of this settlement layer for all the online transactions in the world. And what will eventually happen is you'll use something like Coinbase or you'll use a wallet that your transaction doesn't speak directly to the blockchain. It'll be on these second and third layers built on top of Bitcoin. And what will happen is you'll have to have some trust with um, the the tool that you're the wallet that you're using. Some entity. And they'll settle like maybe once a day at the end of every day. They'll settle on the blockchain Every transaction that happens on their their network, they'll do one Bitcoin transaction to settle all of their customers' transactions. And they'll start to be batched in this way. And Bitcoin will kind of be the foundation of all payments, but we won't be, you and I won't be directly interacting with with the foundational network.
1: Yeah, because essentially then what you're saying is it's more efficient, right? And I think Coinbase does that right now, right? Like where if I make a transaction or I trade a coin, it essentially batches it with a whole bunch of other ones and then like pushes them through the system all together, correct?
0: That's right. If you and I both have a Coinbase account and we send Bitcoin to each other, that transaction never even hits the blockchain. It doesn't take up any space on the blockchain. Coinbase just updates a record in their database saying that I sent you some Bitcoin. Mm. Um, that's an example of a second layer. Um, and there's going to be lots of different examples like that about how, um, and kind of how this is going to scale. But the, old, the thing at the end of the day will be, if you want the ultimate amount of trust in your transaction, you can and anyone can permissionlessly interact directly with the blockchain if they choose to. Um, if you want to trust Coinbase a little bit and run it that way, you have the right to do that as well.
1: So one of the other issues that I have with understanding Bitcoin is like, I understand it as a store of value. But like, and I understand the scarcity thing, I understand sort of like the digital gold kind of aspect of it. But one of the things that I really struggle with, and this is one of the things why I really like the tagline for your podcast is like, you know, we don't just, you know, keep crypto, we use it as well. And one of the things is like, how do we use Bitcoin when we're always thinking that the cost is going to go up? Because that's one of the benefits of the dollar, right? Is that it's really easy for us to transact with a dollar because we can all assume that like, hey, a dollar is worth a dollar today and it's going to be worth a dollar tomorrow. Yes, there's small fluctuations and whatnot. But, you know, Bitcoin can be 30,000, whatever it is right now, or it can be like 60, whatever thousand in a month. So how does, how do we solve that problem? Like, how do we make it something that we can use if the value of it is constantly changing? Um, so the value constantly changing
0: and using and it being expensive, those are all, those are both good pro, or they're both problems and they're both good problems. Um, you know, one thing that I really like. Uh, so Michael Saylor is this guy who kind of hopped into the Bitcoin world this year um, and he sort of like appeared fully formed, knowing everything there was to know about Bitcoin, which is <laughs> f- freakish, right? Um, but he's just a really intelligent guy. And something that uh, he says that that really resonated with me was this idea that like, what percentage of your money do you use for everyday transactions, right? And when I thought about th- and and why are we trying and you know Visa and Mastercard and Apple Pay, they'll always be really really good, really fast, really cheap for just tapping your watch on on the at the at the pay stand and just walking out like
1: mm-hmm. bitcoin's
0: never going to be able to be faster and cheaper than that it's 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 free and it's instant so how much better can it get right but what what bitcoin can do is it can solve this problem with the 99.9 of the rest of your money that you're trying to store and protect and invest and outbeat inflation with it can solve that problem really well um and you, you can, if you choose to, you know, transact it.
1: So what you're saying is that essentially, like, it's not like we're going to go away from the dollar or some sort of currency that's very easy to transact for, like, day-to-day things. But that essentially, like, Bitcoin is, like, would be, like, your savings account. Yep. It's additive. I mean, just the other day,
0: so I was at Best Buy and I had this problem with my TV. I had to get in touch with Samsung. They're going to fax this, <laughs> this order. To Best Buy to 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 commun- communicate with them somehow, and you know it made me think about crypto because pretty much everything does. It was like, you know, email and the internet. It didn't replace the fax machine. It's still there, and I think the same will ha- like money will still be there, but we're going to have way better ways of using it in the future, and that's kind of what crypto represents.
1: I had an experience where I was working with an accountant who asked me to fax him something and I was like, listen, first of all, I'm on the other side of the world. <laughs> Second of all, I've never used a fax. I'm 27 years old, but the time that I had to use a fax, it was already replaced. And I was like, can I just send you this in a Google sheet or a Google doc? And he said, I don't know what that is. And I was like, I need a new accountant because this is a whole different set of issues. Um, so what about where did, do the rest of these cryptocurrencies come in? So uh, one of the other big ones is Ethereum, right? Yeah. If some like, what is the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum? Like, why are those so different? Why are their prices different? And what is like the inside of them that makes them different?
0: Yeah. So, in the early days of Bitcoin, um, you know, Vitalik, who's the creator and founder of Ethereum, he loved this idea of like this decentralized permissionless network that could be used um, to kind of manage data. But he didn't necessarily want to use it only as money. He was like, "Oh, we can use it for you know virtual identities. We can use it for like creating um, scarce assets, like scarce artwork. We could use it as a. I think his one of his initial ideas was like a, a decentralized DNS um, registration system where like domain names, instead of being controlled by these centralized registrars, could be on blockchains. Um, so he had all of these ideas, and he was trying to kind of work with the Bitcoin community to make to see some of them through and they didn't want to hear it. They're like, mm. Bitcoin is sound money, who has time for all this other crap? So he built Ethereum and his, his, one of his kind of foundational um, um, differentiators with Ethereum is that it has um, a Turing complete programming language and the ability to create smart contracts. So, so what does that mean? So right now, if I send you some Bitcoin, I send it to an address. Um, in your Bitcoin wallet. Ethereum works similarly. I send it to your account or it looks similar to an address. But what happens is you people can write a small computer program that exists at that address. And that computer program will run every time some Ethereum is sent to that address. So now like this idea of programmable money has taken like the next leap forward where Bitcoin was digital programmable money. This is like, the entire progr- the programming itself is also now on the blockchain the code itself is on the blockchain and that's what a smart contract is it's this software that exists in the ethereum blockchain that runs every time ethereum hits that address so that opens up like this whole new world of opportunity where like you can you can build all those fun new things that vitalik initially envisioned and even things like nfts for example today are something he didn't envision And there's going to be, there will genuinely be thousands more ideas in the the coming decades of ways that we can utilize this sort of decentralized infrastructure to sort of make the world and make the internet more efficient. And all of that, a lot of that today is running on the Ethereum network.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, for me, the entire cryptocurrency and blockchain idea is essentially like it's following a very similar path to like if, if... I read something about the internet from like the late 90s or early 2000s, where it's like people couldn't even think about what it'd be used for. It's it's, So it's like almost you're creating a network, but you can't necessarily foresee all the different ways that it's going to be used in the same way that you said, like Vitalik didn't foresee NFTs. But one of the examples that I'd like to kind of like, and you kind of touched on DNS here. And so I kind of want to go down into this example because it's really interesting. And I think it's very uh, current because Mm -hmm. I recently read that China is petitioning to take over uh, a whole bunch of the management of de- of domains. Correct. Yeah. I bet. Uh, which would be pretty scary because, you know, as, as much as we like to believe the internet is like untouchable, it's still a whole bunch of like servers and they shut down the domains. You basically can't access whatever website or whatever it is at that domain. So like they could essentially shut down whatever they wanted to. Sure. So with, this idea then that the DNS can be operated or managed through an Ethereum kind of program. Mm -hmm. What that would mean is that there wouldn't be any country or any entity that would manage that. And it would execute some sort of system, some sort of program that like, if we determine that a domain is $5, I send it $5 to the network and it provides me with the ownership of that domain and there is no third person or entity that needs to essentially overlook that and that can then corrupt that is would that be correct yeah
0: i mean one simple way to think of it is you know when you register a domain like your server has an ip address it's you Mm -hmm. know random numbers with dots in, in the middle and um when you go to your browser though you don't remember what all those dots are you punch in the domain name and what your browser does is it does this dns lookup which is like it converts you know, bitlift.com into 123.549. And that DNS lookup could happen on the blockchain. And, but instead it's currently, you know, there's this like monstrous database somewhere that, and there's probably like the organization of, uh, of DNS registry, you know, of America. And then every country probably has one and they all talk together. And there's this very centralized system that our that our browsers and the internet is using, to do all this DNS lookup and why that's a perfect example of we could take the power away from all of those um, from all of those entities and use the blockchain to do the lookup and a smart contract could, could be able to be the, the code that that runs when your browser does this lookup.
1: So basically the, the benefit of that, right. Is that the system is more efficient. So it should be cheaper and easier. And that also our, human douchiness can't corrupt it in some way like they can't be some asshole or group of assholes that come around and like decide to mess it up
0: yeah i mean this i mean a great example was the pirate bay right like what they were doing was arguably illegal um that being said they've never been able to hold down a domain name they have to keep jumping between registrars Mm. and these companies keep shutting them down because you know the lawyers from um, from Hollywood keep knocking on all these guys' doors and saying, "Hey, you got to take that domain down. You got to take this down." And so this idea of like, why can't if the internet is open and free, then we should be able to publish anything we want on it? Um, and that's not that hasn't been the case for a lot of companies. And now, if you think you know today, what if you try and build like a competitor to Google or a competitor to Twitter? You know they're the Hollywood now, and they're they are they will start doing that stuff. I mean. They should. They need to protect their shareholders, so to speak. Right. So, but if, if it was built on a decentralized infrastructure in the first place, there would be nothing anyone could do
1: about it. So if Ethereum is sort of like, I think the one that kind of, uh, the analogy that really made it click for me was, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, where it's mm-hmm. like Bitcoin is essentially like digital gold where you can save it, hold it. It's like a secure way for you to, like a savings account. Yeah. And then Ethereum is sort of like digital oil, that Mm -hmm. everything in the modern world runs off of, right? It's like the thing that makes it all happen.
0: I like the analogy too. That's, it's a great one.
1: Okay. So what is then the difference between Ethereum as the program, as the machine that runs this as like the digital computer, so to say, Uh and Ether, which is what we're all investing in and hoping that also hits the same amount of, you know, value as Bitcoin. (laughs) It's funny. So, you know, Bitcoin has this actually the
0: same problem. Um, Bitcoin with a capital B is the Bitcoin network. And if you're talking about a Bitcoin, then it's a lowercase B. Mm, and it's confusing. Okay. You know, it doesn't. Most people don't even register it when they notice it. Um, but, you know, Ethereum is, has this issue as well, which Ether, as you referred to it, is this the, the, the root asset of the network. And then the Ethereum network is all of these smart contracts and all of these computers talking to each other. Um, so this idea though, that, you know, Bitcoin is the store of value and it's also used as to, for, as transaction fees to send to each other. Um, but in Ethereum land, you know, you can do all of these things like register a new ENS domain, and then you pay a little bit of ether, no matter what program is built on top of Ethereum, you use a little bit of ether, which when it's being used as a fee, it's called Gwei. It's this tiny, like a small amount of fee that's included in every Ethereum transaction. And so that's why it's thought about as oil. It's like all of these, you know, different programs running on the network are the cars and the ether is the gasoline. And if you want to operate any of these apps on the Ethereum network, you need a little, you need some fuel. And that's what Ethereum represents to that network. And the idea is the, the, more, the more things Ethereum can solve for, the more, you know, kind of a uh, programs built on top of it, then the more it's going to be used, which means more people need more Ethereum, which should increase the value of the underlying Ether asset.
1: So it's almost like Ethereum is this like new internet of things, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, hey, Ethereum has built this technology that allows you to use blockchain for a whole bunch of these different uses. And we're going to allow you, instead of Ethereum making solutions for it, it's almost like we'll allow other people to go out there and make the solutions. And for the ability for the solution, this app, this program, this, whatever it is to run, you need to pay a little bit to the network. And the more activity that there is, the more that Ethereum goes up in price.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ethereum, Ethereum. It's like ether is like the bandwidth is another way of thinking of it. Like if Ethereum is this, is the new, new internet, right? Then Um, the band, you got to pay to, to, to move things around on that new internet. Right now we pay our, our internet companies and they give us, you know, it's been super commoditized to the point where we pay like a flat rate every month. But in reality, there's a cost to all those bits that are being moved um, over the network.
1: And ether is that cost on that network. So here's another question that I've been asked before and I just kind of throw my hands up in the air cuz I just I, I just don't know. It, I I'm with you. I agree that like money needs to change. Bitcoin sounds logically speaking as a far better store of value than a lot of these things. I understand Ethereum. I love the idea of not having to like one of the ways that Ethereum was communicated to me as like a much better solution was like imagine going out there to get a loan and how many people you need to go through by the time that you get your decision back. While you know, a blockchain solution to that is something like it's, it's code. You don't, you know, it's not able to be bastardized by a person somewhere along the way. But one of the really good sort of pushbacks that I've gotten is like, why do you think countries are just going to allow this to happen? Right. Like, so then, what, so isn't this all this money that we're putting in like like how, w- the countries still run shit, right? Like they still have a control and there's a lot of smart people who run those countries who see what's happening and won't they just kind of like shut everything down if they think that they're being challenged?
0: Yeah, I mean that's the beauty of the blockchain is it's so decentralized that there is no, there's no door you can knock on to shut it down. There's no group of parties you. I mean you'd have to coordinate every single miner on the network in bitcoin for example but all of these networks work similarly in that you'd have to get every node to turn it off and then even if they ever turned it back on in the future the data would still be there so this idea like you can't you can't kill these networks they're they're so decentralized that they're going to continue to exist blockstream is a great example they've they're running like a free and open version of the bitcoin network in in a satellite so you don't even need an internet connection. You can be out in the middle of the desert and you can be streaming Bitcoin transactions. So, I mean, and I think the reason they did that was to to, to kind of talk about your, your question there, which is like, why would they allow it? It's like, they don't have a choice. That's, that's the, the simpler answer. How, how are they going to stop it? They can't stop it. It's sort of like, even in China, like they've, you know, you can't Twitter and Facebook and Google are banned in China, but they're, they're all being used by citizens because people know how to route around it. It's the internet. Right. You, can, you can make anything happen on the internet. Bitcoin is the internet of money. And, it's, and this is going to happen whether, you know, these parties that are in control now are super powerful. And they will do everything they can to, number one, regulate it. And if they can't figure out how to regulate it, they'll do what they can to shut it down. But it's not going anywhere. It's going to keep, it's going to keep coming back.
1: So where do you see this like playing? I think this is like the big money question, right? It's like, where do you see this playing out in the next like 10 to 20 years? Because I really, this is so exciting to me because I've always wondered, you know, it's like, oh man, how cool would it have been to be around when the internet was coming up and have all this possibility and whatnot. And I really do feel like we're living through that again, but with, with like blockchain. So like in crypto and like this whole world. So where do you see this playing out in ten to twenty years, and what do you think needs to happen in order for this to have the mass adoption that like the internet has had?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I'm just a guy using the thing, right? So when people ask <laughs> me these big, uh, you know, futuristic predictions, or they're, they they ask me all the time, like, what's the government going to do in response to this thing? I'm like, I'm not the government, man. Who? I, I would love to know the answer to that, but man, uh, I'm going to be you know watching this just like you are. Um, but quite frankly, what I would assume happens, and just based on kind of what we're seeing happen today, is that some governments are going to embrace this technology and some are going to push it away, right? China is pushing it away. And, and what's happening that's funny is they haven't banned Bitcoin in China. They've banned China from Bitcoin. That's what they've done is they, they there's this new global monetary network that they've removed themselves from. Mm. So... And I think there's a and lot of game the, theory like, around
1: that, and all of the like innovation that could be happening on there. It would be essentially like shutting down the internet and not getting all the benefits that comes with the internet. If we're looking at like the 2000s, big time. That's
0: exactly it. They're like, oh, they're afraid of you know capital flight leaving China and the Chinese th- money kind of flowing into crypto networks. But what they're also not seeing is that the global monetary base is being siphoned into the crypto networks, and that could have that could have come into China if they would, if they keep it, if they're open to it. Mm. So, you know, they're going to, different countries are going to react differently. And right now what we're seeing in the U S is an embrace of the technology, quite frankly. Now it's not being embraced in the way that, you know, the cypherpunk sort of crypto guys would want it to be embraced. Right. But what they're doing is they're one, one step at a time, regulating all these different crypto avenues and making sure that there is proper regulation proper tracking and that all everything that we're doing with these crypto networks falls within, you know, what is allowed legally within the United States. Now there's still tons of innovation that can come from crypto by, by doing this. It's just not going to be all of those like magical sort of utopian ideas that the cypherpunks would have, would have loved to see, which is, you know, completely private internet money that, that routes around governments and uh, you know, that while it's a beautiful idea, um, is most likely not going to be how
1: it plays out. So, okay, so we've talked about Bitcoin, we've talked about Ethereum and like the differences between them. What about all of the other cryptocurrencies, Everything right? So, there's else. like a gazillion other ones, right? And At a least. lot of those are built on top of Ethereum, right? So, why would somebody go and in and in I mean, the way that I'm explaining it to myself, and this could be totally wrong, is that it's like, imagine every startup went out there and made their own dollars that in order to use their service, you need, like, if Facebook had Facebook dollars, and in order for you to use Facebook, you needed to buy into Facebook's dollars to use, like, is that essentially what it's happening? Is that there's some sort of technology attached to these coins in order to use that technology or that service, you need to buy their version of the dollars. Is that what it is? Every i every thought you have about what's going on is
0: happening. All all of no idea what that means. All of the (laughs) everything you could possibly, everything you could possibly come up with as to like, is this how it works? Is that how it works? Is this what these guys are doing? Yes, yes, and yes. Like it's totally an experimental playground, right? Some of these cryptos are trying to be money like Bitcoin. Some of them are trying to be smart contract platforms that to build the new, new internet. Some of them are just Being memes and trying to be funny, you know, some of them are trying to make political statements. Some of them are focused on very specific features like privacy, like all of these things are happening at once, which is what makes it beautiful and complete chaos at the same time. Um, It's like, imagine in the early days of the internet, they were like, we already have two websites. Why do we need 50 more websites? And why does it seem like there's going to be 50 billion websites in the future? Same things happening here in crypto land.
1: I have no idea where to go from that. <laughs> uh, so, cause like some of them make a lot of sense to me and then others I'm like, I, like, I don't understand. Cause it's almost like you're, it's a way for you to like invest in the idea. Like there was one that I came across and you probably know the name of it, but I can never remember it where mm-hmm. it's essentially like I can offer up my internet access to anybody who's in that network and they can get hooked onto my like Wi-Fi signal and essentially paying me through whatever their crypto is. Yep. And I love that idea. And I don't know, do you know what the name of it is called? I think it's like pretty uh, popular. Maybe kid? Uh, sure. You actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I love the idea of that because it's like, cool. Like I have this asset, which is like my internet access. Anybody who's walking by my house in yeah. Cincinnati can use it, um, you know, and pay me through their, Orchids, money, whatever it is. I sound like I'm yep. a boomer. Um, and I love that idea of it, but then there's other ones that I'm just like, I just honestly feel like you're raising money for whatever your company is and you're tying crypto to it to sexify it. Sex that it is up. happening too.
0: That is absolutely happening. In a lot of cases, it's happening. There's one of the big questions when you're evaluating a new project is like, does this need its own token, or are mm. they just trying to raise a bunch of money? And quite frankly, the raise a bunch of money thing is actually an important real use case too. this idea that like, in, if you're a startup today, the only way to like legally fundraise is like by filling out all these like SEC paperworks and knocking yeah. on angel investor doors like that's freaking stupid. Let's just this simple concept of we're going to sell tokens, which are sort of like equity in our business to anyone on the internet. That alone, I think is an incredibly valuable use case that is going to create tons more value in the world, just, just that concept alone, right? Some of these tokens, they do have some value beyond that. And some of them don't. Some of them are total scams, just trying to steal people's money. Some of them, you know, people thought that they were gonna be scams and they turned out to be some of the biggest projects in crypto history. So like I said, all of those things, all the ideas you can come up with about, is this what's happening? Is that what's happening? Yeah. like. People are trying everything right now. And that's kind of, that's what's so much fun. That's why there's so much noise though. And like parsing the signal from all that noise um, is really hard. And the only way to kind of parse that signal is to go back to the roots and like understand these foundational things. Like what is money that like, that's why I Mm -hmm. focus on those things, because if you understand those, you can understand what's happening on top of it.
1: So, if somebody's listening to this and they're wondering, all right, so there's all this. <laughs> I love this, like, whatever you think is happening, it's probably happening. Yeah. Where, like, what are the ones that you would say, like, the foundational tokens that people mm-hmm. should know? Like, if somebody's just getting started, obviously, Bitcoin and Ethereum are like the yeah. kind of like core two. But what are the other ones that you would say make up, like, hey, this is kind of like the core team, so to say? Uh, of tokens and like the ones that they should understand.
0: Um, So one thing that I, 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 a lot of people in crypto look at all the time is a site like coin market cap. There's also one Mm -hmm. called coin gecko. It lists all the coins in the world. You'll see there's thousands of them and thousands more being added every day. It ranks them by market cap. So you can just get a sense of like the market cap, meaning, you know, the value of that network. It's a good way of just comparing the networks to each other. It's how much value other humans have put on those networks. Um, Bitcoin is number one by far, I think like 45% of all money in the crypto, um, economy is in Bitcoin. And then kind of Ethereum is next and it's like half and it goes down from there. Um, so those are the two biggest, this, this idea, think about like these different sectors, right? There's the mon- the hard money sector, Bitcoin kind of owns that one. Um, there's mm. the smart contract sector, which is Ethereum. And a big story, this this big boom cycle, is that like there's all these Ethereum killers popping up. People are trying to be like the next version of Ethereum and launch their own smart contract platforms. Um, Cardano claims to kind of try to be something like that. Solana tries to be something like that. Um, if you think that a smart contract platform is going to be bigger than Ethereum, maybe that's a sector that you might kind of want to explore the various options and invest in, right? Um, privacy is a sector. Monero has always kind of had to lead in privacy, um, along with Zcash. Um, but something, one of the big, the bigger things happening right now is like this idea around DeFi. Um, you know, we talked about how you can now build all these new things on top of a smart contract platform and decentralizing the financial industry is like the first idea that just makes the most sense and is the easiest it's like the low hanging fruit is like, mm-hmm. let's replace the banks now. Now we can like program a bank into a smart contract. Let's program a bank. Um, so, and, and this, like the reason I think Coinbase IPO this year is because centralized exchanges are done for like, there's no reason to be using Coinbase anymore when we have something like Uniswap or some of these big decentralized exchanges where you don't need to go through all the KYC and you don't need to connect your bank account. Once you're, Once you're in the cryptoverse where you've got some Ethereum, you can trade for any other Ethereum token on these decentralized exchanges. Um, So DeFi is a big one. Um, Curve is a decentralized exchange that focuses exclusively on, well, initially stable coins. And then it kind of got into coins that that have the same value, swapping like one type of Bitcoin for another type of Bitcoin um, on the Ethereum network. And so Curve is, like, a big exchange um, in the deci- in DeFi. Um, so, you know, currently I, I invest a lot um, in DeFi, in Bitcoin, in Ethereum. These are things that kind of I'm excited about. Um, the kind of meme coin thing that's been going on ever since Elon punt- pumped Doge, that's just yeah. one of these, like, fluke things that's, like, just it's so much noise that I haven't been paying any attention to. It's fun. Like, I, I think yeah. it's ridiculous. But, like, that, people who are in crypto are not kind of looking at those things and and making investments there right
1: right it's just like shits and giggles essentially
0: yeah I mean one, one more to throw in there is like um something else that's happening in this uh, in this wave of of this boom is like this idea of these second layer solutions like ethereum and Bitcoin are having trouble scaling as more and more people come on these networks so there's things like poly the polygon network which is like, this thing, it's it's sort of like a second layer for Ethereum. Um, and there's going to be more of these second layer for Ethereum ideas. Um, there's these things called oracles, which is like, how does a blockchain get data from the outside world that's not currently in the blockchain? How does it get that information in like a decentralized manner? Um, and so like Chainlink is a product that's like, creates these oracles for these smart contracts to talk to. So there's all these like different sectors. And, you know, if you take a step back, You can be like, oh, if this is like the internet, then maybe there's going to be an e-commerce sector. You know, maybe there's going to be, you know, a search sector, a social media Mm. sector. And which of those like opportunities do I think um, has the most potential and then break down the projects in those sectors and kind of see which ones you think have the most traction, tinker with, play with them, use them, see if it feels good and maybe invest in them. Um, That's kind of how I kind of view the landscape.
1: It's interesting because it's almost like the finance and investment world meeting like the tech startup and like internet world. And like, you can, they're almost like this, like marriage of both. Cause even you said like, it's not like you're like, oh, I love Google. I'm going to go use Google. It's almost like, oh, I love Google. I'm going to use it and I'm going to invest in it. Like it's, it's like the marriage of these two things.
0: Yeah. Why do you think Apple and Tesla are the biggest stocks on planet earth? It's because people love their products and they use their products. So they get right. tons of retail investment and that that retail investment brings the institutional investment. And yeah, that's how, that's how the world works. People are, even though there's a lot of noise, there's still like simple ways of approaching this stuff where it's like, do you like the product or do you not? And if you like it, invest in it, like invest in the things that you like and that you see are adding value to the world.
1: Well, Gerbs, you mentioned that one of the things that's really tough is like parsing the signal from the noise. Tell me a little bit about, the podcast? Where can people find it? Where can people find out more about BitLift? Because um, there's just, there is a lot of noise. And I do think this is something that's really important for people to at least begin to understand, because I really do feel like this is the, you know, we all would like to think that would have been smart enough to recognize the internet, you know, when it was coming up in the 90s and the early 2000s. And like, that is actually happening right now. Yet so many people are still, you know, pretending like it's not. So where can people find out more about the podcast and about BitLift and what exactly is BitLift? And when you say that you use crypto, you don't just invest in it. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, so BitLift, um, it, it's, it's gone through a few iterations, but nowadays I'm focused on like trying to help people and educate people on this stuff. I realized like you were, uh, you're the crypto guy in your circle for for some reason. Maybe you mentioned yeah. it once and uh, now you're stuck being that guy. Um, I've been that guy for a long time too. Uh, and we can you can start know, like I, a
1: little like support group, you know? Yeah, <laughs> we need one, I think. Uh,
0: but so BitLift is, is the support group. <laughs> That's actually the goal of it, honestly. And uh, we have a Discord channel where there's a couple hundred people in there. We're talking crypto all day. Um, and there's like a little help desk in there where people come in all the time who are like, I bought my first Bitcoin. Where is it? (laughs) You know, those kind of questions. And we help people with that. And I think it's, it's, it's helpful. I mean, something you mentioned that's funny is like, you know, when you first used the internet, did you like, did you be like, oh, I'm going to learn about how to use the internet this weekend and like spend a weekend learning about the internet. And then now you knew the internet and Mm -hmm. you never had to uh, think about it again. Or did you use the internet every day for the rest of your life since? And you learned, that's how you learned. Mm -hmm. Crypto is the same way. Crypto is the new internet of money. And you're going to, if once you get into it and once you start using it, you can use it for the rest of your life. And that's how you're going to learn. Take a really long-term approach. Don't think about like buying crazy new coins and thinking you're going to get rich tomorrow. That's, that's not how it works. You get rich by just being there for, for now and forever. And BitLift, the idea is like, let's build a place where we can be there now and forever. Um, the first kind of, I wrote a guide on there called the Bitcoin rabbit hole, which mm-hmm. kind of was a good starting point for a lot of people to, to first, like their first kind of entry point to Bitcoin. Um, I hope to write more stuff like that. Um, but what I kind I of discovered is- highly recommend
1: it, by the way, for anyone listening. Uh, I've been down the rabbit hole and it's very well done. So nice.
0: Yeah. And I wrote that a few years ago and, you know, the writing is hard for me. But apparently I have the gift of Gab, which I've kind of stumbled into and like talking about this stuff. I love to talk about it. I could talk about it forever. So a podcast just made a whole lot more sense. Um, And hopefully we're going to start kind of converting some of the things we talk about into also more guides for the site as well. Um, It's also BitLift is also a great place to to shop for crypto stuff because I have an e-commerce background. Um, And so I built maybe one of the only marketplaces where you can only pay with crypto, like back in the day I needed every customer to be able to pay me so I would go you know figure out how to get my PayPal set up nowadays I want to use crypto with you I want to show you how to use it if you need to buy a hardware wallet or something like that um, you can use crypto for the first time there and you can know it's kind of like a safe playground for for using crypto um, in kind of an e-commerce capacity um, so you know bitlifts is kind of my playground and it's a fun way to kind of help people and uh, just get people using crypto and talking about it
1: yeah. I, I love how you said that about the internet. Like, you know, it's not like you went and like you learn how to use the internet in one day and then like you were good to go. Cause like one of the things that I've been doing is like, I took a hundred dollars worth of Ethereum and I just mm-hmm. started like spending it on quite flank, frankly, could be like stupid shit, but like I was playing around with MetaMask, which I still don't quite know exactly what it is, but like, you know, and interfacing that with like I was gambling on horses or something the other day on like this new project. That's like, I was like, this is cool. I have no idea. I told it to like my mother-in-law. She was like, I think my daughter married a crazy person, but like, like, so it's almost like you need to like set aside, like anybody's listening. It's been a lot of fun to like learn about this stuff that way, where it's like set aside like a small amount of money and then just kind of like play with it and like, don't expect anything to happen, but just use it as like cash for you to like, you know, earn the experience of playing with some of these things.
0: Totally. I think it's some of the most fun I have. Like every day I wake up, I don't know where, you know, crypto is going to take me. Right. Right. And that's kind of the beauty of it. Um, And some of it turns into some really like insightful stuff. Some of it is a total waste of time, but you know, so that's how the internet works too. (laughs) Some days (laughs) you wake up you don't know where you're going to end up on the internet. And uh, some days are productive and some days aren't.
1: Well, Gerbs, thank you so much for, uh, you know, coming on the podcast. This is a ton of fun. I've been really looking forward to, uh, having this discussion with you. And again, if, uh, anybody's listening to this, uh, the new BitLift podcast should be out today. So can people find it just like anywhere where they find podcasts or is there a special place where they should go find it? Uh,
0: that's the goal. If they hit bitlift.com slash podcast, we'll definitely have links up there, but very hopefully if you hop into your, you know, podcast app, you should be able to find it. That's the
1: goal. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thanks for coming by. Always fun.